Hey, my friend, welcome to Fine is a Four-Letter Word. My name is Lori Seitz. I'm an entrepreneur, mentor, founder of Zen Rabbit, and your instigator in saying, fuck being fine. This show is for those of you who are done living with the dumpster fire and are ready to find the tools and courage to transform, to step into more success and fulfillment in both your personal and business life. You're in the right place for stories of self-discovery, gratitude, and connection. And to help you strengthen that connection to your own inner guidance, you'll find each episode has an accompanying meditation. Now let's get into it. Today, I'm talking with the one and only Amanda Katarzy. Not to sensationalize, but this is one of those episodes that is going to grab you by the throat and take you on a roller coaster. Hopefully by the end, it will inspire you to take action. And in the takeaways, I'll tell you how you can. Raised in a cult, a survivor of sex trafficking, and now owner of a content agency, Amanda Katarzy has seen it all. After escaping her trafficker, Amanda dedicated the next 10 years of her life to fighting sex trafficking. She counseled the New Zealand government, wrote federal legislation, and has gone undercover to bust trafficking rings. Amanda is now a fractional CMO, that's a chief marketing officer, and runs a successful content agency, Inquiry Co., She is also a seasoned keynote speaker and is passionate about helping others find their voice and use it effectively. Today's episode is sponsored by Zen Rabbit. You hear a lot about the great resignation lately, and that's not happening so much because people simply want more money. Studies show it's because they want to work in a culture that values them and thinks holistically about their happiness and well-being. This is where the Fuck Being Fine program for companies comes in. Through it, managers and their teams learn how to stay calm and grounded no matter what. It's designed to move participants to stop pretending everything's fine when it's not and inspire them to upgrade how they respond to stressful situations. If this sounds like something that would be valuable in your work environment, message me at lori at zenrabbit.com or text me at 571-317-1463. Buckle up and let's go. Hello and welcome to Fine is a Four-Letter Word. My guest today is Amanda Katarzy. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, well, let's not waste any time jumping right into the first question, which is... What were the beliefs and values that you were raised with that shaped you into the person that you became? Well, they weren't they weren't the best. Uh, they were ultra conservative, very um, dogmatic kind of ideas because I was raised in a cult, which was an ultra conservative Christian cult. So if you are familiar with Amish community or Mennonite community, not saying they're Amish at all, or they're cult at all, but those kind of ideologies taken to a new extreme and throwing in a little bit of child bride and military stuff in there. And then you've got ATI. (laughs) Wow. All right. So that's where you started. That's where I started. I was, I was groomed to be a wife, a baby maker, uh, ultra submissive, uh, quote unquote, godly woman. 
That is hilarious to me because, and I'm super excited for my listeners to get to know who you are because you are like the exact opposite of that. (laughs) (laughs) My mother would be clutching her pearls right now. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how did you, how long did you live in that world? I was basically born and raised in it. So my parents were looking for homeschooling curriculum. This is back when homeschooling was not popular and there was no, there were no resources for homeschooling. So this cult offered that. They had a homeschooling curriculum to teach your child how to be a godly good person, which was really appealing to them because their upbringings were really not great, uh, really dysfunctional. And so they wanted something different for us, and that and that's what appealed to them the most. So they were trying to do their best. Uh, and so all through high school, I was raised in this culture um, and groomed in this culture to be this submissive, meek woman uh, with a bright countenance and no rebellious spirit in my eyes, uh, which obviously did not stick. So no, no, it did not. <laughs> So, and you're saying we is who, who else? How many siblings do you have? Oh, my brother and I, I have an older brother and he's fantastic. And that's it. And so we were partly shunned because we only had two kids in our family. So in this cult, it's super normal to produce as many babies as possible. So families were normally seven children or more. Um, so the Duggar family from TLC, the 19 and counting family, they're part of ATI. So, um, oh. That you try to have as many kids as possible. And if you don't have many children, then your quiver is empty, uh, which is a biblical term for not having a lot of kids. And you're basically shunned. So we're kind of shunned. <laughs> and then did you graduate from high school? Like, Sure, technically. <laughs> okay. All right. I got, I got my All GED. Right. So. Okay. So you never actually went to a public school. Mm-mm. All right. And then what, what, where did you go from there? Did you decide like, I'm not living this life, I'm going to leave? Or did your family leave as a whole? Yeah, we left as a whole. There were a couple instances where we just did not fit in. And I was not the submissive type, uh, even back then. So I caused a lot of trouble. Um, I was sent to Indianapolis Training Center at one point to kind of be taught the way of a good woman. That didn't work. Uh, so they were kind of done with us <laughs> and we had graduated high school, my brother and I. So we're, we were done with the curriculum to a certain degree. And so the choices are continue in the program and go to their college Verity, which was in Flint, Michigan. I don't know if it's still there or not, um, or to leave. And so we just ended up going to a community college, which was my first public school experience and blew my mind. So then we just kind of slowly integrated back into society, but the the belief systems and everything that is instilled as you as a child were already laid basically at that point, which set me up for failure in the future. What was the thing that was most surprising to you like out in the the rest of the world? I think I was shocked how men and women interacted with each other. That was probably the most shocking. I'd never seen people talk to each other or act with each other in that way, Um, just like all over each other or even in a um, like the same level in equality. It was because I wasn't supposed to talk to men. 
Um, I wasn't supposed to even start a conversation unless they engaged me in conversation. If they did, it was usually to do something. It wasn't just to talk or to be friends. So that was very strange to me. (laughs) Mm, Okay. Tell me the process of how you kind of uh, integrated into public life. Yeah, it was just a slow process. Um, I was always drawn towards music. And back in the day, you could go to Walmart and you could scan a CD at a listening station and listen to a section of the song. And so I got caught doing that a couple times. And I was always drawn to music. I love music. I was, you know, I play piano. I play piano and jazz band in college. So it's always been something that's been a part of my life. And so there were moments of like that where my mom just kind of like, okay, she just kind of gave in. (laughs) And, And then we slowly, okay, we got our first pair of pants and make sure they weren't too tight. They were baggy. They were bell bottom. And there were still a lot of really hardcore conservative ways of living that we were still abiding by, like nothing on your shirt because you don't want to cause a man to stumble by looking at your chest because he has to read Mm. the words on your shirt because it's totally my fault if a man can't control himself, right? Sure. So so there there are still like some conservative values in place. Um, We just kind of slowly integrated out of them. And then when I, so this was, took a couple of years, this took about four years. And then by the time I decided I was going to go to school in California, which was the worst thing I could possibly do, because California is Sodom and Gomorrah of the United States. So, and I went to an ultra charismatic Pentecostal ministry school. <laughs> so that was my rebellion right there. My, my parents okay. didn't think I was going to do it for some reason. Um, but then I like, packed up my truck and drove across the country. And they're like, oh, shit. <laughs> I, gu- I guess I guess she was serious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then I did three years of ministry school at Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, which is like Harry Potter school for Christians. Um, and that was a blast. That was actually a really positive experience because I was able to start to figure out who I am and what I wanted out of life, and if I liked peanut butter or not, if uh, you know I liked music or not, what clothes I liked to wear, all those things that you usually figure out in your teenage years, I had to figure out in my early 20s. Yeah, okay. All right. So it was like a really and transformational process. It sounds like it. Mm-hmm. And you were open to all kinds of new experiences. I mean, it's almost like being a baby, right? And learning yeah. everything. Super about naive. The world super easily easily taken advantage of so that that's what ended up to lead me into some some big trouble <laughs> the part where we where we get to hear about how you thought everything was fine and it wasn't fine yeah that part okay <laughs> tell me about that part so, so once i graduated school so everything had been severely controlled in my life up to a certain degree even when i was in school at Bethel because I have classes I'm going to. I have groups of people I'm required to be engaging with. So I'm having all of these experiences in life where community is created for me, forced upon me, (laughs) but created for me. So now that I'm Mm -hmm. out of school, I'm working, I'm a real adult. um, I, oh, go ahead. What did, what career did you go into having Harry Potter wizardry (laughs) Um, skills. <laughs> well, uh, while I was in school, I did um, some social work. So I worked with adults with physical and mental disabilities. Um, and then after that, I started actually working for the school, but managing the content 
uh, of their media company. So they have a massive media company and I was the content manager for all of their websites, which there were like 200 or so websites to manage. So that that's where I actually got started in content creation and management. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. Leo, back to your story. I didn't want to Content management for a mega church was my daytime job. That was my daytime life. And then I started, um, I went to an MMA gym close by because I had no community. I was lonely. I was bored out of my mind. So um, someone invited me to go there. I ended up going there. I was really freaking good at it. Uh, so, and I enjoyed it. It was super empowering. It was fun. It was a great workout. I lost um, about 70 pounds you know, from what? college. Yeah. So I, I cut a ton of weight. I got healthy. I'm running all the time. I'm like Rocky. I'm doing all this stuff. And these people, my fight team, were unlike any individuals I'd ever met in my life. So coming from, again, that super controlled environment where emotions aren't allowed for me to exist as a woman, I've got these people who are extremely dysfunctional, <laughs> bless their hearts, and they are mm -hmm. telling you everything about everybody and how they feel and what, you know, all that in the most explicit ways, of course. Um, and most of them are fresh off parole, out of jail, they got their baby mama. So it's just, it's a glorious hot mess. And it was fascinating and amazing to me because for once people were talking about their emotions and I was allowed to do that. So mm. me being the go-getter that wanted to fit in, decided to tell everyone about how I felt about everything and how I was raised and all the rage that I kept inside. And they came to learn that I was very naive and raised in a very dysfunctional, sheltered way. And while some people wanted to protect me, others decided to take advantage of that. So at this point, you thought everything in your life was fine, mm -hmm. but is this where you started seeing maybe it's not so fine? Yeah, I'd seen cracks of it before, like walking into a grocery store by myself for the first time and going to buy food. I did not know what to buy because I didn't know what I liked because I was never given that opportunity to discover, do I actually like peanut butter or not? I was just given peanut butter and you eat it and you say thank you. So that was, I know it sounds small, but when you're a 20-something-year-old woman and you don't even know what you like to eat and you don't even know how to buy groceries, that's very scary. And that that's, makes you feel so vulnerable. So when I'm now mm -hmm. around people that are expressing their vulnerabilities, I feel seen and heard for the first time in a long time. Um, and again, that was manipulated to work against me. And that's where my trafficker met me, uh, was at this gym. Okay, so that's where you met him at the gym. Was he part of the this fight club team? He was someone that would come in. So normally when you're an MMA fighter, which I was heading towards that career route, um, basically, is you have a conditioning coach, you have a ground coach, you have a boxing coach. Um, and you have someone doing all your nutrition. So you're, you're, you have these four people basically inside your life, inside and out. They know everything. So he was my boxing coach. Gotcha. Okay. And then you went on to develop a relationship with him. Yeah, 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 yeah. He showed me a lot of special interest and um, 
started giving me free training sessions, one-on-one training sessions. And so I thought, you know, I was flattered. I was a young girl. He was somebody who was respected in the society around him. He was, you know, a world champion boxer. He was promising me all these incredible fight opportunities. So I was enamored. Yeah. So we started dating. As anybody would, like it's not necessarily because of the background that you had. Like if somebody starts showing you attention like that and Mm -hmm. it would be natural to assume that that person was, had your best interest at heart and was actually interested in you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he was very kind to me. He was very generous. He was very nice to me initially, which is also referred to as a Romeo pimp. So that's when they're very nice to women. They think they're in a relationship with them, a loving relationship, and then it turns. Um, and it turned. So, How long did it take to, do, to turn? About six months. Okay. And then how long were you in it before you went, wait a second, this is not, this isn't, this doesn't seem right. <laughs> it took me a while. Uh, and I don't know if it's from all, getting punched in the head a bunch or what the deal was there. But um, it took about eight months for me to realize that this wasn't what I wanted. But I think I probably realized it earlier, but you disassociate so far from your emotions when you're experiencing trauma and abuse that you don't let yourself have those Mm -hmm. thoughts. And especially because I had violated and given up so much to get to that point, I wasn't willing to walk away with nothing. Like you feel like you need to walk away with something of like, this had to be worth something. Like all this pain Mm -hmm, had to be mm -hmm. worth something when really it wasn't worth anything. And that's a painful thing to recognize. I, yeah, I can imagine. Were the other people that were on your team, did they know what was going on? I think they knew to a degree. I don't think they realized how nefarious it was. How did you manage to get yourself out of this relationship? Like, were you, because sometimes people are in this and they're, you know, when you're in an abusive relationship, you're afraid to leave because you're, the person is threatening your life or your physical um, well-being. Um, Is that what, did you face that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All the time. Um, I mean, he, even though I was a fighter and I was doing fights every weekend, so he was technically laboring, labor and sex trafficking me. Um, So uh, the labor trafficking was him making me fight every weekend and him getting the profits off those fights, um, which was going to be invested into my fight career, right? That's what I was told. Um, And then the sex trafficking was a series of manufactured accidents (laughs) and rapes by him. Um, So usually the areas that I was involved in, the groups I was involved in, they um, wanted that scenario where they could, I would fight and they would overpower me and rape me. So that was something that was Mm. part of the whole experience. Um, So if you can imagine the kind of individuals that take joy in that, these are the kind of people we're dealing with. So um, to get away was a little complicated, (laughs) but it was super easy at the same time. I don't don't know. The the toxic hold they have over you mentally is the most difficult spot to get away from. So I'd actually gone to see somebody and I was supposed to train with him and fight with him and then um, do stuff with him. And I did not feel like it. For whatever reason, I was sassy that night. I was being rebellious. I was like, no. And so I knocked him out. I ended up knocking him out. 
his name was Shameless, or his fight name was Shameless, um, which is kind of ironic. And so then I I left the gym. And as I'm leaving the gym, a Canadian in a Cadillac runs through a light, runs a light and T-bones me in my truck and totals my truck. Um, And there was a cop right behind me. So he saw the whole thing. That's the only time I've ever been knocked out was by a Canadian in a Cadillac. And uh, I woke up to him. <laughs> that's my that's my claim to fame, right? Right? Yeah, <laughs> Never been perfect. Knocked out. Um, and so the Canadian in the Cadillac, or no, not her. The police officer behind me uh, was prying the door open when I came to. And so I came to and he said, oh, my God, I thought you were dead. And so um, I texted. I'm, I'm used to head trauma at this point. It's super normal for me to have concussions. So I didn't think anything of it. I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. So I text my trafficker and said, hey, I just almost died in a car accident. And remember this clear as day. And he says, is your face fucked up? And I said, no. And then he says, well, at least you're still fuckable. Um, and at that moment, oh, I was like, maybe this isn't the relationship that I want to be in anymore. <laughs> That was that was my it's not fine moment. And I wasn't like, oh, it's all clear to me. I'm being trafficked. Like all the, I wasn't like that. It was like, this isn't the life I want. Something's not right here. I need to get away. That was like your your wake up call was getting hit by this yeah. Canadian. She saved my life. A hundred percent. So yeah, so that Does she know that? Did you no. ever tell her that? No, no, I don't. I don't even I know who curious. she was. Yeah, it'd be cool. Okay. I don't even know if you ever hear this Canadian lady. This is for you. <laughs> um, but no, I have no idea who she is or or whatever. She, I think she was like a student at the school, but the school was so big at that point that you know. Um, and so then I had to. He wouldn't even come get me, so I had to call a John to come get me and take me to the host to my. Um, my apartment. I had an apartment in the city. Um, and so I stayed there and then I realized I couldn't order a pizza. I couldn't understand how to do that. I couldn't understand where they took my truck or I wasn't able to put information together. I wasn't able to finish sentences. So I decided it was time to go to the ER at that point. <laughs> and I had severe, right, brain. right. I had a severe brain trauma at that point. So. Wow. It, because of the car accident or mm-hmm. because of all the fighting or the combination? Thereof? Probably the combination because I'm getting concussion every single weekend or so. I mean, even if you win a fight, you're still getting punched in the head. You're still getting hit. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Y- there's a good chance you're going to have a concussion every single fight. Did you have any friends? Uh, I mean, I had... Depends on your definition of friends, I guess. I mean, I had disassociated so far and I was living this double life completely. So during the day, I go to work. I help with all this church stuff. You know, I'm this person. Um, and what really annoyed me is after the fact, and it took me a while to get over this, is um, once it all came out that this happened, I had some of my old coworkers be like, I knew something was wrong. And I'm like, mm. bitch, why didn't you say anything? Like, I was trying, right. you know, I, me showing up to work wearing the same stuff five days in a row, something's not right. There's yeah. depression going on there. There's suicidal ideation going on there. There's, she's not making it home. Like, obviously, something's not okay. <laughs> so, right. that, that like, really bummed Did- me out that no one, everyone's like, I knew something was wrong. Did you? Because you didn't do shit. So I don't know if you call my friends or not. 
I would say no. <laughs> they were coworkers. I mean, because to me, a real friend would say something yeah. like, hey, something something doesn't seem right here. Do you need to talk to somebody or yeah. is something going on? Like to start a conversation. Well, in that point too, to be fair, I'd probably pushed everybody away to a certain degree as well. So I want to okay. give a lot of people the benefit of the doubt as well is like, I didn't do myself any favors in that moment either. Um, mm-hmm. Hurt people, hurt people, mm-hmm. right? So right. I did my fair right. share of it. Were you still in touch with your family at this point? Very limited. Um, so that's one thing that always happens with abuse victims is they become isolated from their family groups, from friends. Uh, so the only people I was really talking to on a consistent basis were my fight team and then uh, maybe once a week a short call with my parents, but we'd kind of had a rocky mm-hmm. relationship. Anyways, they didn't want me out there. They wanted me back in Florida. Mm-hmm. So that was always a, a tough moment. But um, my grandma would always send me stuff in the mail, you know, like presents and letters. And my mom would send me stuff every once in a while as well. Okay. So you're in the hospital. <laughs> you have severe brain trauma. And where does this story go? Well, it goes on a little bit of a roller coaster, but it ends well. So So they made the mistake of releasing me from the hospital. Um, And I'm my that veil is lifted to a degree. Right. So I'm kind of seeing things kind of as they are. But with that comes an onslaught of all the emotions I've been disassociating from. And it was a lot Mm. to handle. It was too much. So I ended up uh, swallowing a bunch of pills and committing suicide. Right after I got out. Wow. Okay. I did not know this part of your story. (laughs) Well, because it's a little like nuance here. So um, yeah, that happened. I I'm not really sure how I got okay again, how I got brought back to life. I remember somebody pumping my stomach. I remember somebody yelling at me for it. There were a lot of people really mad at me for it. I don't remember being in a hospital, so I don't really remember all that. But I woke up the next day or after, I don't even know how many days passed. I woke up and I'm like, oh, I'm good. I didn't die. And I'm like, God must want me to live. Okay. So then I'm like, I better fight to live then. If I have this second chance of life, Mm -hmm. then I better fight. Fight for it. So I went and got a puppy (laughs) as any mentally unstable person would do. A hundred percent. So I went and got a puppy. Because I'm okay, like, so well, your support puppy. That's my suicide prevention dog. So she's uh, she's still with me. She's awesome dog, and uh, yeah, it's, it's worked. Obviously, <laughs> I haven't killed myself yes. yet. Um, and so she was my suicide prevention dog. Got a puppy, and then I bought a plane ticket home, and I literally just picked up and left everything. So I lived there for five years. I had career. I had my truck. I had an apartment. I had apartment full of stuff. I packed two suitcases and left everything else. Broke the lease, (laughs) ruined my credit. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you got to do, I mean, you got to do what you got to do to save your life. I mean, at that point, that's, Mm -hmm. that was your choice, right? Life Mm -hmm. or death. And you chose life and you had to do whatever it was going to take to live. Yeah. I was very aware that that clear uh, window of thought was small. And so I had to Mm -hmm. act within it. Otherwise I'd just get sucked back in. And I knew that. So that's why I, that's probably why, like, I was like, okay, I'll kill myself. And then that didn't work. Okay. (laughs) I'll leave. (laughs) So. 
Right. Because that makes sense. Because that makes sense. That, Here that we would are. be the sequence of it events. It works. It works. Yeah. <laughs> it, it worked for you. And I'm, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Me too. What were the tools then? Because obviously you didn't just, that wasn't the only thing. Like you came home and then everything was fine. Like everything was great. What, what were some of the tools that you used to move from that place to where you are now? Because now, and I want to talk about that for a second too, where you, where you moved to, but tell me about the tools first. So the first tool I used was the internet um, because I couldn't receive anything from anybody. I was, I was a raging asshole. I was so mean. I was so horrible to be around. Um, PTSD, brain trauma, depression. I mean, all this stuff was coming out and it was messy. I was like a ticking time bomb. So everything would trigger me. Um, and my normal go-to emotion when I'm not my best is rage. Um, and that's always mm-hmm. been a consistent thing in my life. So learning to undo that was a process. So um, the only thing that I could consume at that point was um, a book called I Am by Howard Falco. It's on my bookshelf right now. And then I started listening to podcasts. So at that point, Andy Frazella had his MFCEO podcast, and he was talking a lot about um, dealing with PTSD and dealing with mental health as a business owner. And then Ed Milet. And so those two Mm -hmm. guys, I listened to religiously. Like I consumed all of their past podcasts, all of their current podcasts, and they basically were able to help me get to my next level, which got me into therapy, which got me into, um, you know, all the breath work, all the grounding practices, uh, trauma resolution therapy, everything. So that was, they were the ones that saved my life again. <laughs> wow. And you bring up a point because not every, you have to be ready for the tools like mm-hmm. they could be available to you, but you're not ready for them. And so you have to find the ones that work for you mm-hmm. for where you are. Yep. And like my parents, I moved back in with my parents, which was interesting. Bless their hearts. They uh, they dealt with me so well. They were so kind. Um, and they invited me into church and stuff. And I felt bad because I couldn't go. Like I just couldn't do mm-hmm. it and I couldn't handle it. And I didn't know how to tell them that. Other than be like, no, <laughs> at that point. Mm. But you're right. I wasn't ready, you know, at that point to experience that because I felt like the church and all the Christian people I was around had failed me. They'd let me fall into mm-hmm. this. They didn't care enough, um, which was a lie, of course. But, you know, the lie I was believing at that time. That was the story that you were telling yourself. Mm-hmm. And we all make up stories. I mean, the, everybody who listens to this podcast has heard all these stories and mm-hmm. and knows that this is what we do as humans, right. good good or bad intentions, never mind those. It's yeah. just we're, we are story-making machines. Yep, 100%. Which is why the stories work so well in marketing. <laughs> Which leads perfectly into what I was going to ask you about <laughs> because now you are the one telling the stories. Yep. Writing the stories and telling the stories. Mhm. Yeah. How did you find your way to this? I mean, it's a little bit related to what you were doing when you were working out in California, right? Yeah, yeah. So I run my own content agency now, and we really focus on helping uh solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, brands find their voice and use it effectively. 
So much like I did not have a voice for the majority of my life, a process of finding it was very healing and very interesting. Um, That also being said, the entire time I journaled from the time I was like six years old until now. So I have all those journals on my bookshelf right now. And um, so I became a pretty good writer, uh, if I do say so myself, because it was the only way I was allowed to express myself. So I became a, a very astute observer and storyteller and point maker. (laughs) Um, So Mm -hmm. when I started the content agency, everybody was like, oh, yeah, you're a great writer. We know you're a great writer. So it wasn't a huge leap of any kind, um, but it it fits perfectly. And then I also did about eight years of social work in between that. So I have all the psychology behind that, how to communicate with people, how to motivate them to do things with words. And how to support others, like what they want to hear, what drives them, their needs, et cetera. That makes perfect sense because so we both have this background in marketing, but if you're not in marketing, you don't understand how much psychology goes into it. Mm-hmm. And it's not because um, it, that is part of crafting messages, effective messages. Yep. A hundred percent. It's, I mean, it, that's what makes good marketing from bad marketing, right, is the psychology behind it. So good marketing, you don't even know you're being sold to. Um, and I love it. I love the, the game. I love the the strategy. I love it all. It gets me pumped up. Yeah. Speaking of getting pumped up, actually, before I ask you that question, I have one other question okay. for you. And that is, how did you choose your ideal market. And I don't usually get into this, but I'm, I'm so fascinated because you are very specific with who you work with. And is it because those, is it because Ed and Andy helped you get to the point where you are now to find your success? And that's why you target people who follow them. Like not when I say target, like those are your ideal clients. Yeah. Um, I think it's that, and I think there's some a redemption piece in there. Um, my trafficker was was them. The he just chose fear over love. Um, so mm-hmm. definitely not to rationalize anything he did or anything he became, but he was raped as a young boy. Uh, so he was an alpha male who didn't have the choices t- to heal. Um, and mm-hmm. so his choice was either to become a victim or become an abuser. And he chose to become an abuser. And that was very, very in the front of my mind during out this whole part of this process. Um, and I've encountered a lot of really wounded, angry men that if they just had a positive influence in their life, they could do so much good. Um, so part of it is solving an issue of abuse, solving the issue of sex trafficking is addressing the abuser and their conditioning. And then also, yes, uh, Andy and Ed were a huge part of helping me find myself and find my health again. So um, I love redeeming that part of my life by supporting very strong men who are running brands that need help in communicating effectively because again bless their hearts they are going five different directions and are usually very abrasive Um, those are my guys and so I can help them stay true to their message and their calling in a more palatable way so they can reach more people and do more good Mm, okay all right very cool. So let's go back to the um, charged up 
part <laughs> where I ask you what your hype song is <laughs> when you need to get into that that headspace of being finding your energy. Which is funny because I've had a lot of walkout songs for fighting. Uh, so I've had quite a few. Um, when I, I've been listening to a lot of Queen Herbie. Actually, a lot of her stuff really gets me hyped. So like her song Vitamins is trending right now. But any of her songs makes me super hyped. Um, TNT, any ACDC. <laughs> I can't pick one. It just sure. depends if I need to step into like femininity power or if I need to step into like masculine power. I, I go back and forth. I listen to a lot of Rob Bailey and the Hustle Standard, which is a lot of screamo music because um, the emo kid in me is still alive and well. So, <laughs> okay. There's a lot so of that too. It's all over the place. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I can't give you a straightforward answer there. Okay. But if you had to pick one in this moment? um, I mean, Cage, uh, uh, No Rest for the Wicked by Cage, Cage the Elephant. I think is their name. Okay. That's such a good song. Right. Like that song's always like in my heart and I'm always like no rest for the wicked. Um, so that's probably my jam. All right. I'll take it. How can people get in touch with you if they want to continue a conversation with you? Instagram. I live on Instagram. So Amanda Katarzy is my handle on Instagram. Slide into my DMs. Well, let's talk about marketing and healing and growth. I'm all about it. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today on Fine yeah. is the Four-Letter Word, Amanda. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That is quite a story. And understandably, for a long time, Amanda didn't share it with anyone because she was afraid of how people would perceive her and how it would impact her business. It was one of her mentors, Donnie Bovine, founder of Success Champions, who is also one of my coaches who convinced her to put it out there and to own it. So she has, and it's made her stronger. Her business is on fire, and she's in the best place she's ever been. This leads into the first key takeaway for today, which is own your shit. Your story is your story. Whether you can take responsibility for the actions leading up to what happened, or you were an innocent victim, when you can own your story and say, yeah, this is what happened in my life. The story no longer has power over you. You get to take back your power and use it for good. Number two, if you see something, say something. This phrase doesn't only apply to public transportation facilities. After the fact, Amanda's coworkers said they knew something wasn't right, but no one said anything. Things could easily have turned out differently because no one wanted to start that conversation. Number three, not every healing tool is for everyone. You hear me talking about meditation all the time because that's what I teach, the power of gratitude and meditation. And still, the healing tools that work for one person may not work for another. You have to find the ones that work for you. Start from where you are and move forward from there. Number four kind of comes back around to the first takeaway. Once you own your story, there's a chance you can come back around and find redemption in helping the same type of person who hurt you. Not that person specifically, but others who are like that and could be headed down that path. That's what Amanda is doing with her business now. 
giving a positive voice to strong men so they can stay true to their message. As usual, after we stopped recording, we got into a whole other interesting conversation. One of the things that came out of that was Amanda's support for and involvement with Safe House Project. I'm actually familiar with this organization because I was introduced to the co-founder and COO, Brittany Dunn, more than a year ago by a mutual connection. Safe House Project works to educate people to spot, report, and prevent trafficking. They provide emergency services and placement to survivors. And they strive to make sure every survivor has access to safe housing and holistic care. If you want to get involved, you can find more info about Safe House Project at safehouseproject.org. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Are you enjoying this show? Please tell three other people about it. Let's get these stories in front of more people who can benefit from hearing them so they can know they're not alone and there's nothing wrong with them. And so they too can realize it's possible to say fuck being fine. Thanks for being here and subscribing to Fine is a Four-Letter Word. Please share this show with a friend or a colleague. If you're feeling especially generous, leave a review so other people like you can discover the show too. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and all the major podcast directories. You can join me on social too. On Instagram, it's zen underscore rabbit. You can find links to the other platforms at zenrabbit.com. Before you go, remember to take a moment to think about what you're grateful for today. Lastly, you can find this week's meditation queued up right after this episode. And if no one's told you this week, I'm proud of you. Take good care. <laughs>